Welcome to the Run Run Live 4.0 podcast, where we plumb the daily adventure of endurance sports. Let us seize this precious moment together and squeeze the life from it like a golden lemon sent to us fresh today from the emissaries of the gods. Terribly happy guy Then he ate a moldy pumpkin pie Then he thought that he just couldn't die So Ned, he laughed so hard and made him cry Made him Hello and welcome to the Run Run Live podcast, episode 385. This is Chris, your host. And who am I? I don't really know, but I'm working on it, and I'm hopeful. In this podcast, we talk about endurance sports and other complimentary topics that maybe can help you find some succor in your life. We've been doing it for 10 plus years now. It's been a fine ride. Been quite a spring so far, hasn't it? Yeah, Boston was epic. Boston Marathon. I got a lot of positive feedback on the race report. Thank you. I took a little extra time putting my thoughts together, and I'm glad it resonated. I wanted to tell a good story and see if I could put you in it so you could live the story with me. And particularly rewarding for me is to hear from others, other runners that were in the race, and have them say, you know, you nailed it. And and then forward the post to their friends and say, here's what it was like. And our friend Eric is putting together a video from what he could reclaim from the race. And he's going to use part of my audio to support the video story. So his camera, it's it's waterproof, but it was raining so hard that the water actually got into the microphone sort of cavity and essentially muted it, right? It's like, so a lot of the audio is like being underwater. I recovered fine from the race, no problems. Got busy trying to make up for all that uh, bad eating and drinking that I had been holding at bay during the training cycle. So I got I to gotta refocus my nutrition here coming up. Uh, just because it's not healthy. Not healthy. And last weekend, we held our 27th Groton Road Race. We got a bit of rain, but it was very successful. We had really good numbers this year. The shirt was great. People really seemed to enjoy the earlier starting times. And the cooler temperatures made for some some really good race times. I quote-unquote ran the race on Saturday this year. I really just jogged it. But good enough to get my name and the results to keep my 27-year streak going. And we stopped to pick up trash and other things, so we really, we were meandering. And even after I led a crew the previous weekend to clean up the course, 
there's always a few fresh beer cans and stuff that we have to police up. And my daughter, Teresa, she set her a PR this year in the 10K. She ran it in 53 minutes. And that beats my official time of the day before. So good for her. It's great to be young. I've launched into my training cycle for the 100 miler as of this week after a couple of light recovery weeks. And I'll be running basically three days of middle distance during the week, six, eight, ten miles, and then back-to-back distance on weekends. And all of it on trails. I love my trails. And I've been getting up this week and heading out into the trails early. And I take Buddy, the extremely old wonder dog, for the first two miles. And then I head back out. It's really beautiful in the trails in the morning. And the sun comes up around 540 right now. And I've been getting out about six-ish. Really nice. You should try it. It's really beautiful. Nice way to start your day. So today we have a conversation with Brian Burke, who is an ultra runner with many adventures to his credit and is also a writer. In section one, I'm going to read you a older post on how to recover from a marathon because I thought it might be timely for people. You know, this time of year, it's spring marathon time of the year. In section two, I'm going to talk about future narratives and red blood cells a bit of the old Vinnie Vin Vino. So I've been exploring a meditation site called Calm, which I've been telling people the joke is I mistype Calm and put in Clam, and that's an entirely different website. But they have this free seven-day beginners program where the guided sessions are about 10 minutes long, and a lot of it is, you know, exposition. They talk about what they're doing and trying to do instruction. But it's good basic introduction to breathing meditation. And the day five session is particularly good, or at least I found it resonated with me. And what it addresses is the ability to let go of the need to do something. Now, this calm thing is primarily a phone app, but I went to the website instead. And as an extra bonus of the website, they have this looping white noise soundtrack that's pretty good for concentration enhancement. It just plays automatically in the background. So sometimes I just put that on and let it play while I'm doing stuff. But I digress. I recommend you find a quiet place and listen to the day five session. And ironically, I stopped to take notes (laughs) during this session, so I wouldn't forget to tell you about it. So... But we all have our lists, and we have our impending deadlines, and these things tend to push us through life by creating tension that drives us to to do stuff. And I mean, that's good in a sense. You get things done, that positive tension. But that causes us to rush through life without looking out the window to see what's going on within and without. And this session explains how to shut that rush to do things down and gives you a healthier perspective. And perspective is the correct word, because through focus you can observe the scurrying of the mind to get things done, and without judgment, know it for what it is. And you gain awareness that you don't have to fill every moment with something, that there is a value of non-doing. And through practice, you can learn to give yourself permission to pause. Learn to give yourself permission to pause. But not now. We have to get on with the show. 
It is when we learn to leave our comfort zone that we find ourselves communing with our inner strength. All right, my friends. Here's a post for you recovering from marathons. Nine things you can do to help your body and mind cope and speed your recovery. Okay, my friends, you have just run a hard 26.2-mile race. You have been training for this event for three-plus months. You gave it everything and left it all on the course. Now what? How do you recover physically, nutritionally, and mentally to keep your mojo going? There is an interesting intertwining of physical, nutritional, and mental activities that you can pursue holistically to speed your recovery. Get back on your feet and avoid the post-marathon blues. These are all interrelated, but for the sake of simplicity, let me break them out so you can use them in your next race. Physical. When you cross the finish line of a marathon, your legs are going to be tired. Your joints and connective tissue may be sore. You may have muscle cramps. You may have over-fatigued major muscle groups, and they may be spasming as a result. Your muscles are full of crap. They are full of the waste products produced by having to work so hard for so long. It's like they got very busy and didn't have a chance to take out the trash for a couple months. So, number one, keep moving. When you come across the finish line, keep moving. Don't stop or sit, or lie down. If you stop, you will get sick, and your muscles will lock up. Keep moving. And I know you're tired. I know it's hard. I know it hurts. But you have to keep your legs moving for a few minutes, or worst case, they'll spasm and lock up with cramps. Best case, they'll constrict, preventing blood flow. And this prevents recovery. Number two, get a post-race massage. A good physio or certified massage therapist knows how to give a post-race massage. This is not a deep tissue massage. This is a flat or pressure massage where the therapist pushes the junk manually out of the major muscles. This simple thing will greatly reduce muscle soreness and speed your recovery. Number three, consider a soak. Now, there are arguments over what works and what doesn't. You certainly want to avoid hot baths or prolonged hot showers because this will make the existing swelling worse. I will take ice baths after long, hard workouts to relieve the swelling. Some people swear by Epsom salt baths. Test it out in training. Check with your coach. See what works for you. Number four, wear compression. I sometimes will race in compression sleeves, so I'm usually looking to get out of them after the race. Some competitors swear by the healing impact of wearing compression gear for the days following the race. Number five, stay active. The week following the race, don't sit around. Many plans and pundits will say you need to take two to three weeks completely off, but that's, that's, that's BS. Depending on how beat up you are, consider which activities are best for you and only do those activities that don't hurt too much. Don't run unless you're very fit, but consider active recovery. It will help you heal and make you stronger. Go for a walk. Take your dog out for some fresh air. Get up on the bike for some low-intensity, high-RPM spin. 
to get that blood moving and get that crap out of your muscles without the weight bearing. Do some easy swimming if you have access to a pool. Work on some core strength routines. Do plenty of long, deep stretching or yoga. Now, nutritional. Nutritionally recovering. You just finished a marathon. Surely you can eat whatever the heck you want, right? Well, yeah. I'm not going to begrudge you your celebration foods of choice. But you still have to keep in the back of your mind that what you put into your body greatly impacts the quality of your recovery. So my sixth point is settle and replenish. When you cross that finish line, you may never want to look at Gatorade ever again. Chances are you're going to be several minutes away from your own sources of food, so you will have to choose something the race offers. Focus on simple foods that settle and replenish. Right after you've finished is when you have some stomach problems. Once you stop moving, all that blood starts to pool, and you may immediately get nauseous. Or it may hit you at any time in that next 20 to 30 minutes. And for this reason, I would caution you to choose wisely. Get some cold water and sip it slowly to start countering that dehydration. Don't chug or gulp, or you, you may see it again. And choose foods that you know go easy on your gut. I like to take a piece of banana because I find it settles my stomach. Some people like pretzels. I would recommend against any of those shakes or milks or sports drinks that they may be shoving at you from the finish line. Most of this stuff is processed crap anyhow, and it isn't good for you in general, and it's terrible for recovery. And just because it's being offered and it's free doesn't mean you should drink it. Number seven, rebuild. Once that first wave of nausea has passed, you can start to take in foods that will help your recovery. And I'm not going to get into a nutrition debate, so let's just leave it at you should get a good, high-quality source of carbohydrates and good, high-quality source of protein. Whole foods are always better than processed crap. You might have a nice pre-made smoothie waiting for you to start things off in the right foot or some fruit and veggies. Once you've got some good stuff in, go ahead. Have that beer and cheeseburger or some junk food. You earned it. Smiley face. So what about mentally? One of the biggest issues people deal with after completing a marathon, especially if it's your first, you know, or early marathon, is this sense of a loss of direction. You've been focusing on the big event for several months. Now you're done. Now what? People call this the marathon blues or the post-marathon slump or ennui, how can you avoid it? Well, first, write down your race. Capture what went well and what didn't and why while it's still fresh in your head, right? How was your race strategy and execution? How was your nutrition? Capture it so you can go over it and learn from it. Share it with your coach. And then number nine, set your next goal. Don't leave yourself up in the air. Script out a routine that will take you through the recovery and on to your next training cycle. Have a training plan for the week or two after the marathon with specific activities to keep your mind engaged and on purpose. Use this opportunity to work on things that you haven't had time for, like stretching and yoga. Look out on the calendar two or three months out 
and sign up for another event. It doesn't have to be a marathon. It can be any event that gives you a clear horizon plan, gives you some purpose, something to look forward to. If you have a goal, you have a purpose, and you won't be lost in those post-marathon blues. Recovery is just another phase of the training cycle. Save yourself some time and heartache. Do the little things that will help you recover and set you back on the path of success for your next event, for your next cycle. And now for today's featured interview. We've been chasing each other for a couple of months. You sent me your book, which was Running to Leadville, and I read that. I think you have another book out on... uh, tips on how to run uh, a marathon as well. So uh, why don't you give me the 200 words or less, uh, Brian, on who you are and what you do. Okay. Well, my name is obviously Brian Burke. I'm a ultra runner of 10 years and a marathon runner of just about, I guess, 17 years now. I'm a retired U.S. Air Force uh, vet, presently working in the Virginia area, and it just seems like running's kind of taken over. And my additional hobby of writing a little bit is kind of almost a perfect fit to tell the stories of ultra running and just some unique races. Yeah. So uh, you were telling me, how many ultras have you done in the last 10 years? Uh, I think the count is right at about 55, if I remember right. Yeah. And that's all all flavors of 50K and up? Yeah. It started all with a 24-hour race. I have no idea why I ever signed up for it. I had no idea what I was getting into, but it was a 24-hour run for cancer that I've now done 10 years. And uh, it just kind of sucked me in. That was a uh, bridal type course, loop course, and you just rack up as many miles as you can for 24 hours. I've also run road 100s, ran all the way down the coast of the Outer Banks, 102 miles. I've done uh, rails to trails with the Yeti 100, and then as we were talking about, Umstead, uh, another bridal trail, a 12 and a half mile loop course. I've done a little bit of everything, and then JFK, other 50 road miler, uh, road 50 milers, and a bunch of 50Ks on all different kinds of surfaces. Yeah, so have you run uh, Leadville? I have not. I have done everything but run the race, which I get a lot of feedback from people who have read the book, and I get a lot of people writing me or calling me saying, what year was this? What year did you finish? What was your time? And (laughs) the story is a fictional story, although a lot of the characters' backstories come from my life. I took a lot of the emotions of my 100s and my ultras and put it on the Leadville stage. Uh, I just fell in love with the Leadville race, and I wanted to tell the story of the race as well as a runner who is running the race to find himself. And uh, I was real nervous about releasing it. It is fiction, but I wanted it to be true to the race and true to the spirit. And I've had people who have run the race 10 years write me and say, you nailed it. Now that I know you haven't run the race, but you nailed every detail. It's, It's a very accurate portrayal of the Leadville Trail 100, the community the terrain, the challenges, and the race spirit in itself. And I'm, I'm real proud of it, but I feel compelled. I got a, a ticket. I got a slot. I'll be out there in August. I'll actually going out in June to run the, the training camp, and I'll be out there in August to give it everything I got. So have you crewed there before? Have not, no. No, uh-uh. so it'll be your first time out. So, yeah, that's amazing because that's the part of your book that I actually liked was the race description part was uh, I thought it sounded like you were there, right? So good for you. Yeah. Yeah, I went to great lengths to get it to feel like that. I mean, I wanted a book to entertain a runner. There's many manuals out there on how to run and how to train. I wanted to entertain a runner and a non-runner to expose the drama behind a 100-mile race and life in general and feel pretty good about it. Yeah, and I always talk to people about that because running, especially marathon and above running, has so much drama in it. Why it doesn't translate well to 
books and then to movies as well. And I think it's because most of that drama is on the inside, right? Most of that drama is going on inside the person's head, and it's hard to project that outward, right? It's hard to put people in those shoes unless they're also a runner and they know what you're talking about, right? It is, yeah. Some people, and we talked about this uh, this weekend, was, again, the 10th running of that 24-hour race for cancer here in Virginia. And I was out there, you know, mile 60 talking with somebody about the book and about running timed races, 24-hour, 100 miles. I said, you know, most people have no idea what goes on. No, most people have no idea what place you take yourself in order to finish. And, you know, even for me, I mean, that was my 10th time out there. But in the middle of the night, we got to some ugly places in life and figured out how to fight our way out of it. And although I felt short of 100 miles this weekend, 95 miles, I was pretty happy with it. Yeah, well, that's good for 24 hours. That's a great time. Yeah, like I said, I'm taking on my first 100 in July, so I'd be interested mm-hmm. in any uh, tips and tricks you would have for it. One thing, though, I just ran, like we were talking about before, I just ran Boston, and uh, I ran it shoulder to shoulder with a, a buddy of mine, uh, Eric Strand, who actually has uh, six uh, Leadville buckles. And he runs it with his son now. Yeah, and I look forward to it. I met Eric uh, for the first time in January at the, you know, I just lost the name of the race, but it's a distance classics down in Tampa. We had been friends on Facebook for a while, and I sent him a copy of the book because he's got some unique videos on Leadville, and a lot of them I've watched a million times to get the details and the flavor, and I wanted him to read the book and get his take on it, and I was happy with his review. He, I think his words were, I definitely caught the drama, and he could feel my love of the race and my love of the unique challenge that Leadville's offers, and I was real happy to meet him, and I look forward to seeing him again in August. Yeah, well, he survived Boston. He ended up having a, a little bit more in the legs than I did at the end, I think, because he has so many miles under his belt. But uh, I'm starting my campaign right now. Uh, it's kind of fun now with the warm weather. I'm getting up early and going out and running every morning in the trails around yeah. my house. So there's something spiritual about that, being out in the trails with sunrise, pounding oh, it yeah. out, right? It is. And like you said, this weekend when the sun was coming up after being in the dark, fighting through the bad hours and then seeing the sun come, it's like a new day, a new birth. And as a runner, sometimes it's a new vigor to help you get to the finish. Yeah, there's something about that. Yep. Why do you think people do these 100-mile races and this ultra stuff? Because I see athletes, but I also see a lot of people who are like recovering addicts and people who have had major transformations in their lives, right? Yeah, it's tough. Like you said, everybody's got their own story. And I think that the 24-hour race, or whether it's 100 miles, you see all parts of yourself during that adventure. You start out, you're hopeful, you're energetic, everything's working, something goes wrong. There's the shock, the disappointment, the frustration of this isn't the perfect race. There's the challenge of fighting your way through it. There's the challenge of continuing when everything in your body says, I don't have to do this. And then there's the victory of dealing with the elements, dealing with the challenge, dealing with whatever went wrong in your plan. And then as you say, that new day, whether it's the finish line or it's the sun or it's mile 99 going to 100, it's that recovery at the end that I think completes some people. And especially if you're dealing with other issues, you do deal with your demons out there. And when you battle them and win, and then there's that finish line that coincides with the win, it's just something that gets you. Honestly, I never thought people told me about 100-mile races after my first marathon. I said, you all a bunch of Looney Tunes, not this boy, never, never. And now that's my life's kind of geared around it. Yeah. So like I said, the, I've run that Umstead course, the marathon course, and I mm-hmm. like the course. When you say bridle path, you're really talking about pretty wide dirt roads. Yeah, cr- know, it's, it's, crushed granite trails, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like the um, 
sort of the more technical trails that the sections that they put us through down there. But that was a pretty course. I really like well organized too. You can tell those people love what they do down there, North Carolina. Yeah, that's a great crew. The people that put on the hundred, uh, the running clubs in that area, and that's why I chose Umstead because it has such a reputation for a runner friendly first. Although it's not easy, first hundred being a looped course eight laps, eight stations outstanding, and everybody wants to see us succeed. And it's not just the token, hey, do well. It's You can tell they're bought into your victory, and, and then that all played out. And that's why I love the race. Yeah, and I think I get your point with the loop course. I ran a 50K last year that had, a, it was like a figure eight, and mm-hmm. it crossed like every 5K you crossed, right? And it allowed me to position drop a cooler there and, and get a smoothie in every time I ran by. I didn't really have to carry anything except water, right? Um, so that right. was super convenient. So yeah, it, it helps the, you that I can way. see the advantages. I can see the advantages. Plus, you get to mm-hmm. see people every once in a while. Because a lot of times, what I'll find on these, these longer trail races is that you find yourself all alone for long periods of time. I don't know how you deal with that sort of on-trail loneliness when you're out there. Brian, have you been in that situation where you're running along and you're all alone and your mind starts playing tricks on you? You wonder oh, yeah, whether you're still yeah. on the course or not? Oh, yeah, without a doubt. And one of the first 24 hours at Sandy Bottom, which is where this race is run, I literally thought the world ended and they forgot to tell me. And the course parallels a highway and a car went by and I went, oh, there are still people on the world. Because you do, you get so alone and so into yourself. For a moment, I thought, yeah, this, the world's shut off, and I'm the only one left. It's just kind of, it does get very lonely. On the Yeti 100 I ran in uh, September, it's on a rail-to-trail path. If you can imagine three 33-mile out-and-backs, and at part of that, you get separated quite a bit. And there was an hour, at least, I was all alone out there in the dark, and you just keep focusing on the ground in front of you, the next mile post, the next aid station, and you just bang it out and you keep rolling. Where does it typically get super challenging for you in a 100-mile race? Probably 50 to 75 miles because it's kind of that no-man's land. you got to pay the piper to get in the game, but yet you're really no closer to the end. At the beginning, you're excited. Everything's new. It's fun. You're doing it. Yay. And then as you get from 50 and transition in that up to about 75, it's like, these are just miles i got to do. They're not doing anything for me. And really, to me, an ultra is half over at 75. It's not half over at 50. That's still the warm-up. You get to the halfway point at about 75. So I always feel like those miles from 50 to 75 are the toughest because I can get to 75. I can taste victory. I can taste the end. I can dig in. It's that middle zone. It just, for me, seems to be kind of tough. And again, that played out this weekend. Those are some kind of tough miles in there. But once I smelled the blood in the water, then I knew I was getting to the end. What does tough mean? What does it manifest as? Ah, just the feeling of, you know, again, that question, why am I doing this? There's nobody making me do this. This is self-induced pain. My feet hurt. My knees hurt. I had some cramping going on in my calves. And it just got to that point where, like, I don't have to do this. And, in fact, this is a looped course. I can quit in a mile and a quarter, and nobody will care. I'm going to be the only one, really, on the planet that's going to care that I didn't finish and then battling through that. No, I said I'm going to do 24 hours. That's why I, I post a lot on Facebook and all that. And it's really to make me accountable to myself and to right. yeah, my running family that, no, I am accountable to somebody, and I don't want to have to put that post, hey, guess what, I quit. It's just dealing with yourself and sometimes dealing with your mind, the self-doubt. Yeah. So how do you just, not quit at that point, especially if you're running alone, if you don't have somebody with you to push you? 
Yeah, this is going to sound like a crazy story and that I've carried a grudge for a long time, and I guess maybe it's true, but uh, 10th grade junior varsity football, not that I was going to be any great athlete or go to the NFL, but uh, we had a bad day at practice. Our coach made us run a mile, so I was a young punk, and I got upset, so I decided I was going to sprint the mile. Of course, I burned out and couldn't finish, so I walked it. Coach got all upset at me, called me in his office, acted really unprofessional, man. He spit on me, cussed me out, called me every name under the planet. I finally figured out I didn't need to take that, so I turned around to walk out of his office, and he literally drop-kicked me across the locker room floor. I mean, I can still feel his shoe in the middle of my butt. Obviously embarrassed, fell out on the locker room floor with all my friends looking at me, and uh, that was the end of my football career. But that little bit of self-doubt and how I felt, about myself for well, a bunch of years, that's what fuels me. That guy is not going to allow or see me quit again. I mean, when I'm all alone, I've thought of that guy's name many a times and said, not today. This ain't going to happen again. And finishing those races now has changed my opinion of myself. For a long time, it was I was the guy that might give up if it got hard. Well, now today, like I said, a lot of my friends say, well, you're the mule. You're the one that keeps going. We got everybody else dropping out, and you're the one putting your head down and rolling. And that just proves to me that I've fought that demon and changed my little bit of my life story, and I just use that as motivation. Yeah, so in a sense, running has transformed you, right? It's made you realize that you're capable of more. Right, yeah. yeah. And I think that's really common with people who take on the marathon or they take on some of these longer events is they start to believe that they are capable of more. They say, if I can do this, what else is there that I can't, that I think I can't do that I actually can, Right. And I think that probably yeah. spilled over into your writing books, right? You said, why not? Why can't I do this, yeah, right? Exactly. Oh, yeah. Again, another high school story. High school English teacher's probably rolling in his grave. Because, again, I, <laughs> I, I can always come up with a story. I've, I've had stories in my mind my entire life, but I was really bad at uh, grammar and structure and punctuation. And I would hand in a report or a story, and it would come back all just littered in red in a failing grade. And that shut me down. And then finally with blogging, I started playing with it, and people said they liked the story, and they weren't criticizing me on the grammar, and that empowered me to write. And again, the Leadville thing, you know, not that it's a perfect book. I'm definitely a better runner than I am a writer. I'm sure there's errors in there, but it's the story that grabs people. Yeah, understood. And we got another one in the works, so. Oh, yeah? What are you writing about now? I don't want to give up the race name, but it's another... uh, fictional yet based on a lot of reality and it's based on another iconic ultra and again it tells a story of a runner it also tells a story about life and it all intertwines in on the stage of uh, one of the most iconic ultras in the country and uh i got just about first draft done and now i just got to go back to more editing i hope to have it out maybe spring of next year but right now i'm just trying to keep everything under wraps but uh be looking for it it'll be out there yeah that's great good for you so you get time to do that so the other thing that you seem to be really uh, enmeshed in is the community, right? And the ultra community is a little bit different, <laughs> but it's it's also yep. kind of special, right? So talk oh, to yeah. me a little bit about the community around the distance running, especially the ultras. Yeah, I don't have a lot of marathon experience. I've run 20 marathons, but I always felt like I was on the outside of the marathon community looking in a little bit because sub four is about my breaking point. I've run a 353, but I I don't know that I'll ever qualify for Boston. I I don't have that speed, so I always felt like I was in that no man's land. I would show up to a race, run, I would go home. And then I ran that first ultra, the 24-hour race, all alone, didn't know anybody, 
but through the day, people were encouraging, hey, how you doing? Seen you on this lap. You're looking good. Or if I was down, they were trying to lift me up. And by the time I left that race, I felt like I had relationships. And then I did another ultra, and it was the same. And it wasn't just that just show up at a race and go home. It was the – because so the races are so much longer, and you do end up pairing up every once in a while, and everybody has a low and everybody has a high, and you're trying to help each other get to the finish – now, I would guess at the elite level, they're trying to beat each other as well. But our level where I'm at, I want that person running next to me to PR, even if that means he beats me by a few minutes. We want us all to succeed. It just seems like it's more woven together as we deal with, you know, all our each one of our challenges alone, but yet together at the same time. Yeah, I think that's true of the ultra community. But also, I think uh, trail running in general, for some reason, is a lot more laid back than the uh, road racing scene. I think probably the worst are the uh, triathletes, but the, you know, <laughs> the the road racers tend to be pretty tightly wrapped, especially towards the top level, and they do have that sense of who belongs and who doesn't, right? But the trail runners seem to be sort of a big happy family, right? Yeah, yeah. And again, not that I've got any real big connection to the elites, but I was at JFK and Jim uh, Wamsley was there, and he was real personable. I mean, and it wasn't that just, oh, let me sign your bib and I'm out of here. We had a three or four minute conversation. I've never met Dean Carnassus in public, but, you know, I wrote him about my book. He said, yeah, send it to him. He sent me his home address, sent him the book. He gave me feedback. It just seems like even on the larger scale, ultra runners at the elite level are still humble and want to be interwoven in the fabric. I mean, I'm sure there's a lot of demands on their time, but they just don't seem as a exclusive and as far away as maybe some of the elite roads folks. So what do you think that is? Do you think it's something to do with the necessary sort of peace of mind that all those miles alone in the woods give you? Yeah, I think it's humbling. It's just this sport is very humbling. Even at the elite level, 100 miles is going to break you down. Does it break you down in 15 hours or does it break you down in 24 hours or does it break you down in 30? I think it's because at all those levels, you get broken to a point that you realize it's you and the road and everybody has that fight. I've never run a two-hour marathon or a three. I don't know if that does the same to you at those levels. So when you look at it with me going to go out and uh, I've done a lot of running, right? And a lot of marathons and a few ultras, but never gone all the way to 100. So what would be Mm -hmm. like the top three things that you think I need to know to be successful? Not knowing me from anyone else. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, number one is is the race isn't halfway over until, like I said, 75 miles. And my mentor, uh, George Nelson, who runs that 24-hour race, he was the first one to tell me, he says, Brian, there's a level of pain up to 50, and then there's a level of pain to 75, and then there's a level of pain to 100, and they're not the same. It gets multiple levels harder at each jump from 75 to 100 is so much more painful than it was from 50 to 75 or zero to 50. And you just got to be ready for that. I mean, you're going to go to places that parts of your body are going to hurt like you never thought they would hurt before. And yet you got 20 miles that you got to beat this body part up and to get to the end. That's the first thing. Time is definitely your enemy. When you think of a, a looped course or, or even a, an out and back, any time that you spend not moving forward, is getting eaten off that clock. An example, one of the big mistakes I made this weekend, and I didn't catch it to the end, is it's a loop course. Normally, I don't stop for aid at every loop. I'll blast through two or three and then get aid. 
but somehow I was feeling good. I went to grab my water bottle, changed it out on every lap. Well, over 25 laps, even if I wasted two to three minutes getting a water bottle, filling it up, cleaning it off, grabbing a snack bar and going, well, three times 25 is 75 minutes. I gave up 75 minutes of mileage just by doing a routine thing, and I didn't catch it to the end. I didn't follow my own plan. So you got to keep moving. When I did Umstead instead of PR by over an hour and 15 minutes the last time, I bet you I wasn't moving forward for 15 minutes out of that entire 21 hours. I, I stuck to my plan. I grabbed and go. I only time I sat down was to get rocks out of my shoes, and I was in constant motion. But you'll see a lot of people, they see a chair, they'll sit down, fix their feet, fix their socks, comb their hair, whatever. That's wasted time. And that adds up over 100 miles really quick. Yeah, and that's what and I've, been number I've, I've been given that advice already by other people, right? Just get out. Your goal should be to get out of the aid station, right? Yeah, get out of there as fast as you can. I Honestly, I look at it as the enemy. You know, I hit that aid station, I hand my bottle to somebody, fill it, and I'm moving down the line, and I grab it and go. And if that guy's got to walk to me to give me my bottle, I mean, I'm trying to be thankful and not arrogant, but I, I try to let them know, i got to go, man. I can't wait on you to get this bottle and take your time to get to me. i got to keep moving, and it seems to pay off. But be very appreciative and thankful so they know, you know, you're just not arrogant. You, you just got to keep moving. And sure. Number three, I would say, is just never doubt yourself. The minute you start feeding the troll, that troll on your back that says, well, can you really? Oh, it hurts. Geez, I'm tired. I don't have to. You start feeding that troll, and then it gets so easy to punch out. And literally, nobody's going to care. Your right. family, sure, your supporters will care, but really nobody else. Everybody on Facebook and Twitter will go, Chris, you did great. You did outstanding. 85 miles is more than most anybody could run. <laughs> and, and that almost makes it easy, but you can't feed that troll. You never give in to them. I mean, in my very first DNF, I started writing my own obituary, and I knew when I did that, I was writing my Facebook post about how I was going to bail out. The game was over. The troll had won. And now when I go, I try to remember that. Don't feed that troll. Don't even entertain the thought unless a bone is sticking out of calling it quits because you've got to face the music, and the worst music is facing yourself. So how do you parse that out, though, when you're on the trail at 70-something miles and you've got an incredibly painful something, you know, knee or ankle? How do you parse that out, what's going to do permanent damage versus what's a phantom aching pain where your body's just trying to get off the course, right? It's making stuff up. Yeah, I try to go by, but it doesn't always work. I, I try to go by the rule that if I have to alter my gait, then I'm done because then it's major. Or if it's a stabbing pain, burning pain, because there's, you know, there's pain and then there's the stabbing, something's going to explode or the burning, something's torn, then I'm done. This weekend, uh, it was around mile, I guess it was about 80, the tendon that crosses over the front of your foot at the very lower part of your shin, I don't, I don't know what the name of that is, it got just unbelievably sore to the point where I, I didn't feel good running on it anymore. It was so painful. So then I reverted back to just as fast as I could hike. And I could do that without changing my gait. And then I would test to run on it. And it still was painful, but my gait didn't change. It hurt, but I could still land the same and I could still stride the same. So I knew it wasn't terminal. It was just that that piece got fatigued and it was deciding to be a pain in my butt. So I said, well, the only thing I could do at that point was fast hike as fast as I could move. And I was putting down, you know, 14, 15-minute miles just hiking it out. And that was as fast as some people were running. I was catching some of the runners from behind. But yeah, I knew I wasn't yeah, doing that's... permanent damage. 
Yeah, no, but I knew I, I wasn't doing I, permanent damage. Yeah, I hear you because I remember when I I ran a 50 miler about eight years ago, and I did a lot of training on the power hiking because you, mm-hmm. especially on the uphills, you can move faster than people are running. You can move three and a half, four miles an hour if you're good at power hiking, and it uses a whole oh, yeah. different mechanics, different set of muscles, different set of tendons. So yeah, yeah, yeah. That's good good tip. And that would be another piece of advice that I would give yourself or anybody taking on a first hundred. It's not all about running unless you're Wamsley and uh, Hal Corner and all those guys. You're going to walk, so train and walk with purpose. You're not out there holding your hands with your girlfriend walking. You're hoofing it. I can put down 1430s. I can put down 15s. And that has saved me a lot of time on the course to say, hey, you know what? I'm tired and I need a break and I need to eat. I'm into walk mm-hmm. mode, man. And I've eaten a slice of pizza while hoofing it up a trail, and I didn't lose any time whatsoever. And like I said, I caught some runners from behind. So train to to walk and hike as much as you train to run. Absolutely. I learned that when I was doing mountain racing. You just don't lose that much time by switching to a VAR walk. What's your best story from the trails? What's the most memorable thing you can think of in the last 10 years that's happened to you? I don't know if it's memorable, but I know I was on the very edge of real-life fear and it was at Yeti in September, and it's kind of comical, but you got to think of the environment. It's mile 80. We've been at this for, uh, might have been 17 or 18 hours, and this is on a rail-to-trail cutting through private farm country in the middle of absolutely nowhere, and I'm all alone, and I've been all alone now for about an hour, and you go through a series of uh, swinging gates as you cross this private property you know there are gates to keep the cows in and to keep other things out i guess but the trail cuts through there so you're allowed and i'm all alone and i come to the swinging gate and i open it up and it's the middle of the night and it's as it opens up and then i walk and blast on through there and it shuts behind you and i knew there was nobody on the planet behind me and as i'm running away i'm thinking if that gate opens up i am out of here because i'm thinking a ghost is coming or something like that and I'm hoofing on down the trail, and I'm like, oh, that gate just opened up. And I still don't know if there was a monster back there, another runner, or my mind just playing with me. But you talk about extra motivation at mile 80-something to make that next gate. It got my attention, and I was a hoofing fool, man. <laughs> yeah, I felt the same thing. And mile your brain's cooked, right? So you're probably hallucinating. But I felt the same thing at night out running the trails where it's just irrational. It's something deep in the human psyche. Something rustles in the brush beside you or something screams in the underbrush beside you. And it just, you know, you get that big adrenaline rush, right? Yeah. It was the sound of that gate. And then thinking, and I don't know if I heard it open or if that was my mind, but hearing something behind you when you know there's nothing behind you. And then you're all alone going, huh, this is where Bigfoot shows up, right? (laughs) Yeah. So we have this, uh, I think it's the foxes when they're in heat. They make this incredible, like, screeching sound. And oh, wow. I had one of those go off on me on the trail. It's probably 20 feet away. <laughs> in the middle of the night mm. one time, scared me right out of my skin, right? Oh, I'll bet. <laughs> I usually end up shouting back at them, right? That's right. That's right. Sometimes it's the other runners. I ran a 100K down the Outer Banks prior to doing the 100-miler. And you're out in the middle of nowhere hoofing it down the road, and then you look to the side of the road, and there's somebody in a ditch. And you're like, what is going on? And, hey, are you all right? Yeah, I just took a nap. What? You lay down yeah. in a ditch and take a nap? <laughs> it's weird things like that that catch you off guard. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, special stuff. So um, give me the sort of the walkthrough on your Leadville book for folks who are listening. Give me the 
200-word synopsis. Okay, like I said, it is it is a fictional story, but very much based on uh, some challenges of my life. You'll hear about the English teacher. You'll hear about some issues I had with, I guess, not issues with my parents so much, but they went through a divorce. There were some rejection issues with me where my father chose to go a different path and how that affected me, and that affected me and with relationships. And the story of the, the runner is how he deals with relationships and nearly losing everything and then going to Leadville on a quest to find himself and then find his place in life. hate to make it sound too corny, but, you know, the meaning of life on the top of Hope Pass and that he fought his demons and in, in getting back to Leadville and uh, putting his life back together. It's a very true-to-life story. Like I said, probably 60% of it is my backstory. Some things have been changed, some things for the better story, better entertainment value, and some names. But people that know me read this and go, wow, we really didn't know that part of you. And again, I, and I wanted to tell the story of Leadville as well. The race has got a unique history to it. The town is very unique, and the course is very unique, starting at the high altitude, going up over Hope Pass twice, and then trying to fight your way back to Leadville. That's a compelling read. Great. So I'm going to move you towards the exit here, Brian. Where can people find you and uh, any links or anything you want to give folks? Yeah, I got it on my own blog. It's uh, all one word, brianswrunningadventures.com. You can get links to my race reports, my thoughts on training, my thoughts on running and life in general. There's links to the book there. It's on Amazon, uh, Running to Leadville or 26.2 tips to run your best marathon, or really any race. Then I'm also on Twitter, at Dogs. I'm a suffering Browns fan, so if you think Cleveland Browns and dogs, Dogs. And then also on Facebook, just Brian Burke, or Brian's Running Adventures on Facebook. Sure, great. All right, we'll wrap it up there. Thank you very much for telling your story, and uh, good luck with uh, everything you got going on this summer. All right, I appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me, and everybody just... Focus on your race, focus on your life, and just run happy and uh, enjoy life. All right. Thanks, man. See ya. Thank you. Sometimes it takes a third party to tell us what we already know. So I want to talk to you about the importance of a clear future narrative or communication. I gave blood last week. I like to do my part, maybe save some lives, even though with my low heart rate, it's sometimes not so easy for them. The venue for this blood drive was an old school that had been repurposed as town offices. You see this a lot in New England. The old schools were built, beautiful brick edifices in the centers of towns during the boom times of the late 1800s and early 1900s. And instead of tear them down, we repurposed them. And the room I was in was the old school gym. Lying on the table, I was looking up at old composite tiles with the blackened blotches of dusty basketballs of exuberant youth long past. Lying there, waiting to be tapped for my sanguinity and tethered to a bag, I tuned into the voices in the room. The nurse at a nearby table was talking a patient through the procedure, and she was wonderful. She narrated everything she was doing. She communicated. I think we underestimate the value of this communication. We forget how comforting it is, especially in a strange, potentially uncomfortable situation, to know what is happening or what is about to happen. It allows people to relax, to be in the moment, and to trust. The best health practitioners do this. 
this communication practice cuts across domains, though. The best pilots and gate agents follow this methodology. Let people know what to expect. It eases the tension. Great salespeople and customer support professionals, they practice this. And now that I've pointed it out, I'm sure you'll see it everywhere. You don't have to be a movie star or a politician to be a great communicator. Why does this narration or, or free dispensation of uh, information add so much value to the recipients? Well, as usual, I think it's because of our good old big brains. It's all about our hardwired pattern-matching machines and the need to fill in the blanks to complete the puzzle. And when that nurse narrated the process, she filled in the blanks. She was letting that client know what was going to happen. And that allows the big brain to stop worrying and work on something else. And that's important because your big brain, like a border collie, needs something to work on. And what happens when you don't know what's going to happen? Your big pattern matching machine starts to make stuff up. And guess what? When it makes stuff up, it's usually not good stuff. Because of the risk adverse, the negative bias way humans have evolved to survive, your brain will default to looking for all the bad things that can happen, even if it's entirely irrational. This is what I like to call the dead in the ditch scenario. When the teenager comes home an hour late, what does the mom say? You didn't call. I didn't know where you were. <laughs> I thought you might be dead in a ditch. I was going to start calling hospitals. Right? Seldom does she say, well, I figured you were having an enthralling conversation with your friends about music, so you just lost track of time. Yeah. So at one point in my life, I'll give you another story. I inherited a couple employees who were in a remote office in another country. And every time we scheduled a trip to go see them, they thought we were coming over to fire them. Why else would we be making the trip? So I got in the habit of coaching executives to make sure people know what is going on as much as possible. Because if you don't tell them, they will make stuff up to fill in the blanks. And it's never good stuff. It's most always a litany of worst-case scenarios. I'll give you another example. I have sat in on and coached hundreds, probably thousands of sales cycles, and I routinely help people with the tactics and strategy of what to do in a particular sales situation. And a common situation is where the salesperson has been working with a prospect, and all of a sudden they go silent. Everything was going great, and the prospect just stopped returning emails and calls. So what happened? Well, what do you think the salespeople come up with as the cause for this? Well, yeah, they immediately think they have lost the deal and the competition is in there and the price is too high and yada, 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 yada. And then I ask them, I say, so what do you know? What do you really know? Because all they really know is that the prospect didn't respond. All these other scenarios are just made up in their minds. They don't really know anything. And my success here is to talk them down off that ledge before they do something stupid. Because many times the silence on the other end is something totally benign. The prospect went on vacation or had a life event or got pulled into an emergency. And they come back apologetic and everything continues as before. But the life lesson for you, if you're still with me, 
is to communicate with people that you serve. Narrate what you think is going to or should happen. It's great advice, but difficult in practice. Why? Well, we are hesitant to share our narration with others because it feels like sharing puts us at risk. It's a form of fear. Fear of getting told that you're wrong, fear of pushback. So instead of having that valuable conversation around that pushback, we opt to hide our intent under the covers, and this leaves a void that is filled by others. It requires a certain amount of trust to put your narrative out there. You have to trust that the other side of the deal or the communication won't use it against you. Some people believe information is power and will actively hold back, but that doesn't mean you should too. I know for myself I tend not to share this future narrative because I don't want anyone slowing me down. I have this egotistical belief that I can do everything better and faster by myself, on my own, and of course that's not true but it has been one of the success strategies I've used in the past. And this is a behavior that I have to actively resist. Here's the thing. If you let people know where the bus is going, it helps them. It adds value to them. This is a leadership trait. If you are clear and positive in your communications, people will follow and trust you. If they have a different idea, then you want to have that hard conversation early in the process. If you don't, you will be operating in a misaligned team, and eventually it'll blow up anyhow. If you have to take a moment and explain your why so that they can follow, this is time well invested early on. If you can't explain your why, then you have an opportunity to rethink your narrative. So be like that cheery and helpful nurse at the blood drive. Let everyone know what is going on and what to expect and it will ease your pathway to success, whatever that means for you. Okay, now we're going to move you towards the exit, please. My friends, you have stumbled through the finisher shoot of episode 4-385 of the Run Run Live podcast. Time to get something to eat, rest those feet, treat those blisters. So yeah, we switched from winter to summer up here. <laughs> I went out at lunch for six miles of easy road work yesterday, and it was in the high 80s Fahrenheit. I just I kind of wanted to see how it felt, and I was spent the the whole run trying to convince my body that it, the heat wasn't uncomfortable or even unknown, just just a new, different thing, you know, a remembered thing to run with, and it wasn't too bad. So my one note of concern is my plantar fasciitis is flaring up again. Uh, so I think it's a combination of things, but I have to keep an eye on it, make sure it doesn't go chronic on me. I've got a couple of back-to-back -back long runs this weekend in the trails that'll actually put me up over 50 miles for the week. And we'll see how it feels out the other end of that. I might have to shut it down, but I am familiar with this, with this curse, if you remember from about... Let me see. It would be about eight years ago, seven or eight years ago, I came down with a case of plantar fasciitis that knocked me out of running for, oh, probably 18 months or so. So we'll have to keep an eye on that. So I have another tip for you, a podcast tip. So with these longer runs, I have a need for some longer content. And I listened to a great interview of Irish poet, Michael Longley by Krista Tippett on the podcast on being. So the links are in the in my show notes if you want to uh, to get to any of this stuff. 
So this is one of those podcasts where you really have to read the notes and see if the topic or the person is really your, you know, your cup of tea, what you want to stick into your head. Some of it's really not for me, but the interview of Michael Longley was just chock full of wisdom. Some nuggets like self-importance engraves its own headstone and art and poetry require a certain insouciance. So the episode is called The Vitality of Ordinary Things. So maybe it was the heat, but I very much enjoyed the wisdom when I was out on my lunch run yesterday. Okay, my friends, I have to go. But remember, you have my permission to pause. And when you pause, to remember the magic in ordinary things. And thank you for all the compliments on my Boston piece. But as the poet says, it's okay to accept compliments, but don't inhale them. And I'll see you out there. And then he thought that he just couldn't die. So Ned, he laughed so hard it made him cry. And lying there, waiting to be tapped for my sanguinity. That's too many syllables, Chris. Sanguinity.